Welcome to Season 5 of American Political History, Rise of the Metropole, Imperial Ambitions. King Charles II had been for decades taking more and more direct control from local governmental institutions. By taking over these bureaucracies, he had subtly transformed Whitehall from the headquarters of a self-absorbed island kingdom into a bureaucratic institution concerning itself with the world's interests. It became a necessity for Whitehall to create an enlarged bureaucracy which could govern the far-flung locations within the growing empire. By 1676, the busiest committees in Whitehall were centered around foreign trade, colonial administration, and the Admiralty, or what we call the Navy today. The committee that had transformed the most was the Committee on Foreign Plantations, which in the early 17th century for King James, or King Charles I, was a committee that rubber-stamped the king's chosen charter recipients like Virginia, Maryland, and Massachusetts Bay. In January of 1676, the King's Privy Council met and was determined to reinforce the exclusion of the Dutch ships from trade with the English colonies. Although Parliament had passed the Navigation Acts, the English colonies themselves continued to trade with the Dutch and other foreign merchants instead of sending all their goods back to London as was prescribed within the Navigation Acts. Some colonies in the West Indies in America had petitioned against the Navigation Acts. Many were simply ignoring them, and therefore the king's authority over those colonies. Whitehall was most concerned with New England, who was flexing its pseudo-independence and most dangerously claiming free trade rights with anyone they wished. Fearing the spread of these free trade assertions, supposedly granted within their corporate charter privileges from King James, Whitehall and its committees started attaching any aid sent to New England. This included all the aid that would have been sent to New England for the duration of the King Philip's War to be linked to a clarification that their charter rights are in line with the Crown's interpretation of those rights, which, of course, decidedly would not include any interpretation of free trade rights. The Privy Council was also meeting to coordinate their response to the Virginia Colony's petition for a new corporate charter. Those discussions were interrupted when news reached Whitehall on January 3, 1676, of the southern spread of the New England War with the Algonquian nations. Do not interpret this as the assumption by Whitehall that all Algonquian nations were the same racial group which chose actions in unison. It was just an easy excuse to delay Virginia's proposed charter. But, we have to remember that the Privy Council was overseeing a growing world empire. Their aims in America were often delayed or distracted with other competing interests, both English domestic issues and foreign issues abroad. The Privy Council had to figure out how to fund another 3,000 sailors to support the Royal Navy, which was quickly becoming the linchpin of the empire, because protecting the English merchant ships from foreign adversaries was now protecting the lifeblood of the empire itself. Next on their docket was reviewing the reorganization of the finance and defense of Ireland. Ireland was the most exposed English territory to French aggression, sharing their Catholicism. And a bold new system of radical accounting was being tried in Ireland. This radical accounting is not some unheard thing of today, when accounting is so ingrained in our capitalist culture that it's boring. In the 17th century, 
This was still an era of patronage. Just doing accounting itself was a radical idea. It was a challenge to the monarchical patronage-based culture across Europe and most of the world at that time. Patronage, or another way of describing that, having people's personal success be linked to the monarch's preferential treatment of them, was securing the monarch's safety within the society. Turning every part of the government and society into dependence for the monarch's favor. But patronage, as we saw in Virginia, hollows out the effectiveness of government and society. The consistent skimming of society's production will result in things like unbuilt forts in Virginia, while the elites were making themselves rich. This is more true the less direct oversight the monarch has of those wayward patrons. The weakness of the patronage-based system are exacerbated by distance from the metropole. King Charles II was looking for a new way to account his empire, which was now growing out of the reach of his personal attention. In Ireland, this radical new system of accounting was projecting how much taxation should be collected in specific tax rates in specific areas. It was auditing the revenue streams to see how much of that taxation was actually collected and actually got to the king's coffers. It also required the king's patrons to detail every pound spent in the king's name and for what purpose it was spent on. The promising results in Ireland was the expenditure of the same amount of money seeing now fully funded and filled garrisons. The king had another powerful motivation to see through that this accounted governance became successful and ingrained within the society. The tax rate from colonial trade was already established by parliament to be the king's. This meant that when the colony's trade increased overall, the amount of money King Charles would receive in total tax revenue would go up. This would allow him to increase his amount of money being collected while never having to ask Parliament to change a tax rate. If the colony's revenue could be put in good order through this new accounting and colonial and growth encouraged, then the Crown and Whitehall could become revenue self-sufficient, never worrying about Parliament again and their rights to approve his new taxation. If successful, King Charles would never again have to grovel before Parliament for anything. When King Charles II understood this, he changed his mind and had a full reversal on Irish accounting and this experiment. The king recognized Lord Ormond, who was chiefly responsible for Ireland's reform, for his unequivocal loyalty to the crown and an example for others to follow. Publicly signaling, if you're not accounting the king's orders, publicly signaling that if you're not accounting, you're not moving up in the king's court. But again, a growing empire has many concerns. And though accounting was important, the Privy Council had to organize the official protest of the failure of the Dutch to honor the recent peace treaty. Next on their docket, they had to address and take action against the French and Spanish privateers. As the empire had grown, the English went from the hunters of Spanish gold ships to having English trade ships be the hunted in the West Indies. 
Then the Privy Council had to investigate a cabal between the Royal African Company and the Suffolk Cloth Merchants. This cabal had been working to get around the Crown's taxing authorities. And the Privy Council had to move to protect the possessions of the Hudson Bay Company from French Canadians. And the Privy Council demanded the punishment for a murdered Englishman in Lisbon. Finally, it had to address the rights of Scottish immigrants and their ability to work in London's labor force. And finally, finally, the Privy Council had to examine and punish those that had misapplied Irish revenues governed by the new accounting reforms. The Privy Council worked in January to clear its docket and resolve many of the issues listed above. It was acting with such haste so it could return to its primary goal of 1676, financial accounting reform. It undertook the English Empire's first fully accounted imperial budget. This, this sounds simple yet again, but think about the United States federal budget today with computer processing, AI systems, legions of trained CPAs, Yet we still don't really have clear accounting of how much money is spent what and where. In 1676, the king was about to attack the men of Parliament's wealth and political power. Who would have thought that the simple act of accounting could be so politically radical? The Lord Treasurer presented the Privy Council with the 1676 budget for the English Empire. One million pounds for national debt service, which was by far the single greatest current cost to the crown, 300,000 pounds for the navy, 212,000 pounds for military garrisons, 110,000 pounds for pensions. We think of pensions as payout to retired government workers, but in 1676, pensions were allowances given to the crown's royal family. These pension payments mostly went to the queen and the Duke of York's personal coffers. Next on the budget was, was $57,000 for the funding of the colony of Tangiers, $52,000 for the royal running of the household, £36,000 for the king's petty purse, and for the full salaries of essential public officials like the king's judges and tax collectors. But this budget was projected for peacetime revenue. But as we know, 1676 was not full of peacetimes. Both New England and Virginia would be engulfed in war for the entirety of it. Bacon's revolution would cost the crown £100,000 in annual tax revenue on tobacco. The additional cost to repress the revolution would cost somewhere around another £100,000. Maryland tobacco tax revenues, though not fully engulfed in war, fell by £40,000 due to the Indian wars associated with Bacon's rebellion. But those costs paled in comparison to the losses due to the King James War in New England, which raged for the entire year and is estimated to have lost the crown somewhere around the total funding for the entirety of the English military and imperial army. The wars in the American colonies derailed the crown's plan for financial independence from Parliament through the accounted budget. But only a setback, because these crises in the American colonies open the door for something new in English history. The merchants of London and the authorities of the crown at Whitehall would align in mutual self-interest. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating, and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. 
Thank you again, and until next time.